0: Well, Praise be to God. Um, My name is Jeff Bauer, and I get the privilege to serve here as the worship and groups pastor. Um, And if you are a guest or you're newer with us, uh, my family and I uh, made Life Community Church our home actually one year ago today. So our first service that we were here at Life was last year's annual meeting. And so since today's annual meeting, it marks one year, and we're just so privileged and honored to be a part of this family. Um, you all have welcomed us so generously and um, everyone in our family is just so happy to be here. We've been welcomed, we've grown together, and it's such a privilege to be part of a church family that's not just about a personality or one person's gift or different things, but a part where everyone has room um, to bless each other and serve one another, and we are, we are just a part of that family. And so um, it's an honor to be here, and it's an, also an honor to share God's word, because his word is life and light to us all. So even if I don't see say anything that's particularly memorable, um, his word, which John said that, that our prayer is that it would, his word would dwell in you richly, it's his word that will make the difference and be the firm foundation under your life. Now, this January, we've been going through a message series called All of Jesus... For all the world. Now that happens to be the mission statement of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is the network of churches that life is a part of, um, and so it is also our mission in a way, all of Jesus for all of the world, and so we've been preaching through um, that, that mission and also the, the priorities, the five priorities that um, have marked our ministry here at Life, and that is worship, that is children's ministry, that is youth ministry, that is life groups, and missions. And so throughout this month, we've been preaching on those things. We've been sharing God at work testimonies um, about those things, and we'll continue today. And I get the, uh, um, the I guess, the, uh, the opportunity to preach on two at once, missions and worship. And so I have a question for you. Have you ever considered the connection between missions and worship? A connection between what we're all doing here and why we're still here, and what we're here to do on the earth, and the posture of our lives before God. You see, God's mission to save humanity from sin through Jesus Christ is seen from the beginning, all the way through the Old Testament. It was uh, talked about um, from the point when Adam and Eve were um, Taken out of the garden, um, there was already provision made for a Messiah, a savior, uh, the seed of a woman that would crush the enemy, the Satan the serpent 's head it was t- uh, he promised Abraham that through you all the nations of the world would be blessed um, he talked through um, different Uh, fathers in the faith, through the law, through the prophets, all pointing towards the glorious day when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be incarnated. He would live the life that we couldn't live. He would die the death that we deserved. He would uh, then also be raised from the dead and defeat death and sin on our behalf. He was raised and ascended to the Father where he sits interceding for us as our great high priest, that we would all get the privilege to know and experience his love and spend eternity with him. It's good news. It's been from the beginning, God's been driving us towards that point, and Jesus Himself, He gave us our mission, and our mission is to go into all the world with this gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples. But you see, this mission, our mission, what we're about here on earth, right, is not an end in itself, it is a means to an end. And I'm going to quote John Piper here uh, because he explains it much better than I could. So he says that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces, Before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship will abide forever. And you see, the story of Paul and Silas that we read, it helps us to understand. um, It helps us see the priority of worship, but also the purpose of missions and the connection between the two. And so, as a roadmap for this story, as we walk through it and we allow the word to speak to us, Um, We're going to be taking a look at, one, the wisdom of worship, two, the way of worship, and three, the wake of worship. Now wake, like a ski boat goes through the water and a boat leaves a wake behind it, that's what I'm talking about, the wake of worship. So we're going to look at the wisdom of worship, the way of worship, and the wake of worship. Now, to set the context here, the early church was experiencing explosive growth. They were seeing signs and wonders and multitudes coming to Christ, and they were also experiencing mess and theological arguments. And people complaining to this person and that leader that those people aren't doing it right and these people are doing it wrong and like they were having all of these contentions and particularly among Jewish believers who had been raised um, to uh, it, with a set of customs and uh, a set of just kind of religious procedures and things that they had to do, um, they were concerned that the Gentiles, those who were not raised in a Jewish culture who had believed on the Lord Jesus, who were saved um, and filled with the Holy Spirit, that they weren't practicing all of these same things. And so there was discussion and argument about, well, how many of these things do they have to adhere to and how many do they don't? So they uh, convened a council in Jerusalem, brought everyone off the mission field and back to home base, and uh, they had a long argument. Um, They had a long discussion. And Paul... Who is the truth teller? Had been ministering and serving and traveling with Barnabas, the encourager. Those two had been going and traveling and preaching together. And when they came back to Jerusalem, Barnabas also was very concerned, and he had a friend named John Mark. And see, John Mark was a little fickle. He uh, he was not on everyone's time schedule. He showed up late. He missed some meetings. Uh, He left people. He was no call, no show a few times. And Paul was like, "I'm done with this guy. I don't want to travel with him." Barnabas was like, have mercy on him, he's got to come with us, and so finally it was just decided that Barnabas and John Mark were going to go one way and preach the gospel, and Paul selected Silas, um, another, uh, another guy that was there, to go and travel and minister. So Paul and Silas set out from Jerusalem, um, and they head to Macedonia where they're preaching the gospel, and they're having what amounts to an open-air crusade in the marketplace, in one of the cities in Macedonia, and they're preaching the gospel, and there is a girl, scripture says it was a slave girl, um, and, which means she was owned by other people, but she had a spirit of divination, a, a demonic spirit, and her owners were renting her out to tell other people's fortunes, and they were making a lot of money off of this fortune telling, off this spirit of divination. Um, But that spirit of divination was not hospitable to Paul and Silas who were preaching the gospel and the spirit kept antagonizing and distracting their ministry. And so Paul turns and says, okay, I've had it, I've had enough. Spirit come out of her and the spirit left her and she was delivered. And then everyone rejoiced, right? Because she had been delivered from a demonic spirit. Now, see, not everyone rejoices when good things happen. It's the truth. Her owners were very upset because their source of profit had been taken away. And so they brought Paul and Silas before the magistrates, they falsely accused them, and then they were taken, they were beaten with rods. Now, I'm not talking about a spanking spoon, you know, like how to train up your children, I'm talking about a long bamboo cane. And these, I mean, they were beaten to a pulp. Maybe, you know, within an inch of their life. And then they were falsely imprisoned. And they were thrown in jail. Now we get to the first point. So that's, that's where we find Paul and Silas. The first point is the wisdom of worship. So let me set the stage. If you can imagine yourselves for a minute, you might be Paul and Silas. So you're doing ministry. You're serving the Lord. You're helping people. You see someone and you help someone get free of a demonic spirit. You're rejoicing in that. Then you're wrongfully accused. You're arrested. You're beaten to an inch of your life. You're thrown in prison with your feet in shackles. Your body is aching terribly such that you can't escape the pain no matter how you sit. It's musty. It's dark. There's human stench everywhere because there's no bathrooms. You're hungry and thirsty, but there's no food. And you're stuck with a bunch of criminals who would probably do anything, including killing you, to escape. So what do you think about that? How are you feeling right now? Let's get in touch with our inner self, right? How are you feeling? Is anyone wondering like, why God? Have any of you ever said that in a situation? Like, why? 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 Maybe it's like, really? How are, you, how are you allowing this to happen to me, God? I was doing your will, and now I am powerless in prison. I've been beaten, and I don't know what's going to happen. I know. I bet the first thing you thought of was to stand up and say, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. I know the first thing you were all thinking in that musty, dank, dark prison that you find yourselves, you were going to stand up and praise God. Right? Right? I know, that response is just not normal. It's, it seems foolish. It goes against everything we'd probably be feeling inside. Yet, it is consistent with how Paul and Silas and the early church responded to hardship and suffering. Not because it was hardship and suffering, but because problems never silenced their praise. And it begs the question for us, how do we interpret our circumstances? Like through what lens do we look at the situations in our life and the things that we find ourselves in? How do we look at that? Because the presence of pain doesn't mean the absence of God. Difficulties can be ordained by God for his higher purpose and our greater good, which we'll see later in this story. You see, the early church understood that our worship belongs to God in all circumstances. Our worship, it belongs to God in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5:17 this is the same person the apostle paul he's writing to us he says rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of god for in christ jesus for you see paul didn't just talk that way he didn't just Preached that way, he lived that way, and you can see that in this story and in many other stories. He rejoiced always, he gave thanks in all circumstances. For Paul, worship was like a coat. You say, What are you talking about? In the Proph- prophet Isaiah, he wrote, and, and, and he's talking about um, the blessings of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 61, 3, it says that God gives us a garment of praise. Now, what, what's the thing about a garment? A coat. If you you wear a coat when it rains, right? Now, if you go out into the rain, does putting a coat on stop the rain? But does it keep you from getting wet? I mean. The coat, our garment of praise, doesn't, doesn't change the weather, so to speak, but it ju- does change how the weather affects us. And see, God has given us a garment of praise in Jesus Christ, meaning he's already given us something, in fact, someone who is so much better, so much bigger, so much greater, so much more powerful than anything this world can do, give, or take from us, that it becomes a garment of praise in every season, in every circumstance, and in every weather, every season. And so for Paul, his worship, his praise, was a gar- like a garment, a coat, that he was wearing all the time. And this doesn't make sense to the world, because the world is not wearing a garment of praise. We don't do things the same way as believers. We don't see things the same way. We don't interpret our circumstances the same way. Examples, tithing. Nobody in the world is going to say, yeah, I really recommend you giving 10% of your income, no questions asked to a group of people and you don't have any say about how it's going to be used. You just got to trust God about that. I don't think people in the world really take Sabbath seriously, setting aside a whole day of rest, not to do just other work, but to actually rest. It doesn't make sense. How about returning good for evil? Blessing those who curse you, turning the other cheek, forgiveness, loving enemies. How about the accountability of your thoughts? Seeking God's kingdom first and then trusting that all our needs are going to be met. How about give and it will be given to you? How about be the greatest by humbling yourself and serving the lowest? How about giving thanks in pain, rejoicing in trials, singing in prisons? You see, this doesn't make sense to the world because they have no garment of praise that was put on to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. See, a bit of my story. I, before I went into full-time ministry, I uh, was a partner in a tech company and we'd grown that company to close to 50 employees and the trajectory of that company was good. And I stepped away to go into ministry. And many of the people in, in our own company, even who knew me well, like it just didn't it didn't make sense. They're what? What are you doing? Co-workers, people I knew in in other businesses, clients that just are you sure? You're like you're you're giving up your you are giving up your earning potential, right? Because in their frame of mind, you either work for somebody else or you work for yourself. And if you already work for yourself, then what are you doing? Except Here's the thing, as believers, we don't work for ourselves, and we don't work for other people. We work for God. And so when he says, this season is over, and I'm turning the page, that chapter is over, and I'm going to the next chapter, and I'm moving you on, we say, aye, aye, sir, yes, Lord, I serve at your pleasure. I know you're going to take care of me. And that doesn't make sense if you're not wearing a garment of praise in the rain but it makes perfect sense in the kingdom of God. Who are you serving? Who are you working for? Are You working for yourself? Are you working for another man or another woman? Are you working for another person? Or are you working for the Lord? Because those things may not seem wise in the world's eyes, but true wisdom is not a human invention. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord actually are deep, awe-inspiring reverence of God's majesty is the beginning of wisdom, the lens by which we see everything else. Because seeing the world accurately begins with seeing God accurately. If you want to understand what you're going through, look at God. The more you see him clearly, the more you adore him wholeheartedly, the more you are filled and possessed with the knowledge of all that he is and all that he will ever be to you, then things will make much more sense that you're going through. You see, when we see God accurately, worship is our only wise response, and worship becomes our coat, even in prison. Number two, the way of worship. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Jeff, are you falling into the trap that combines worship to singing? I mean, I know you like to sing, but you haven't heard me sing. Now, I thought worship, it was about our whole lives. And I would say, yes, true, totally true. Worship is not equal to singing, but worship does include singing, even for those without trained voices. Psalm 100, verse one and two does not say, make a joyful in tune melody, all you who are trained singers unto the Lord. It says, make a joyful noise. Folks, if you can make a noise, you can praise God. My mom is the perfect example. And if she's watching, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying that. She cannot hold a note. I mean, cannot hold a note. But she lifts her hands with reckless abandon to praise God and sings wholeheartedly. And it's a noise. I mean, it's a noise. But I'm telling you, is there anything that pleases God's heart more than someone laying beside how it looks and how it sounds and what it means to everyone else and to just rejoice with childlike faith in freedom before their heavenly father. See, Psalm 100 says, make a joyful noise. So folks, if you have a voice, you have a musical instrument to make a joyful noise noise. Psalm 100 says also, right after it says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. That's not just here on Sundays. Come into his presence wherever you are, whether you have a trained voice or not, with singing. I'm not talking about the prayers that you say you pray silently in your heart, but You're really just daydreaming. I'm not talking about the songs you sing in your heart that you're really just listening to someone. I'm talking about opening up your voice as it's connected to a joyful heart and singing to him. You see, worship is not ever performed. You can perform music, but you cannot perform worship. Worship proceeds. Worship proceeds from a joyful heart and it enlists our whole being. According to Luke chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus is explaining what all of the commandments mean. To sum it all up, what's the greatest thing, right? And he, uh, what's the first commandment of in, 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 that was given in Exodus? Commandment number one, you shall have what? No other gods before me. That means your eyes are on me and there's not anything in between right? So he's summing all of this up and he says, love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, that includes your voice, and all your mind. See, worship is demonstrable. That means it's obvious or visible to other people. We're not worshiping to perform for other people so that other people will see us worshiping. But when we are worshiping God, really with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, people will notice. And that's not to draw our attention to ourselves. That draws notice to that person is beating or is is. Singing, walking, going to a different drum than I am, and that doesn't make sense. Who are they singing to? Who are they talking to? Who? How are they happy in that circumstance? Why are they praising in prison? Why are they singing in pain? Why are they giving thanks in trials? It doesn't make sense. But our worship becomes a witness. Verse twenty-five B says that the prisoners were listening to them. That means it was audible. And see, when our worship praises God in all circumstances, the noise becomes a noticeable confession of Christ's lordship to others. Worship becomes a witness. And I'm just going to make a quick comparison here. See, I believe that missions is to worship in a very similar way that loving our neighbor is to loving God. So if we truly love God, we will love our neighbor as a result. And if we truly worship God, then we'll be on mission for Him. We'll bring the glory of God with us wherever we go. That's the way of worship. Worship becomes a witness. And number three, the wake of worship. Now, I love water skiing. I grew up water skiing um, at Nosmiano. My uh, my dad, when I was a real little kid, he got a, a bell boy. Boat, which is a little aluminum like open bow boat with a little, it had a, I don't know if it had a 40 HP Johnson on the back, but like in my mind, I really like to think so because that's an Alucom song, right? <laughs> but it had a little outboard motor. And I mean, we skied 52 weekends that year, even when it was cold. Um, and then we ended up with a, a bay liner when I was in high school and we, I loved water skiing. Now I want to say that, we, in our family, outlaw wakeboarding, snowboarding, and skateboarding. If you are turned to the side, that's not a wise thing to do in terms of transportation because, see, as soon as you turn, faceplant You face plant in the water, you face plant in the snow, or you face plant in the curb. And I don't, I'm not down for that. I like skiing. We want to face the direction that we're headed, Right, So if you uh, ever come recreate with us in the summer, um, don't bring your wakeboards. Don't bring your snowboards. Don't bring your skateboards. But you can bring scooters, snow skis, or water skis. Anyway, so behind the boat, you ski on a wake. And the wake is what gives you what helps the ski to plane on top of the water. Um, and the wake trails out behind the boat And our worship actually also creates a wake that enables us and others into missions. Now, the wake of Paul and Silas's worship actually affected everyone in that jail. It affected the two of them, it affected the other prisoners, and it affected the prison keepers alike. Now, we're not trying to recreate... Paul and Silas's prison experience, and do the same t- playlist, and and try to like redo that thing. But we, we are what we do want to imitate or follow is a life that's so fully convinced and available in God's presence that things happen in the wake of worship, and in the wake of our worship. Ushers, if you can help by passing the communion elements, we're going to kind of be moving towards that. And in the wake of our worship, we can expect some things. Some things to happen. See, in the wake of our worship, we can expect that, one, we can expect God's presence to come. Now, what I'm referring to is not God's omnipresence. He is is everywhere. He's all-knowing. He knows what's going on in every heart, mind, mind knows every hair on everyone's head. He he knows the movement of every insect and every microorganism all at once. He is omnipresent. But you see, Psalm 22.3 says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Another translation says, you inhabit the praises of your people, or you are enthroned on the praises of your people. And so what we're talking about is a, a presence that is more specific, special, manifest. You can see that all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New. People having encounters with the manifest or the specific presence of God. And see, when, when we worship, in the wake of our worship, we can expect that God's presence to come. He says, as you draw near to me, so I will draw near to you well if he's everywhere all the time how can he draw near well what he's talking about is it's not omnipresence it's his specific presence to come and to wrap you up in his arms so that you would know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you are his that you are loved that you are accepted that you belong that nothing can pluck you from his hand that you will spend eternity safe in him including today And so when God's presence showed up, you can tell God's presence showed up in that prison because the whole foundation broke. God's presence shows up, his specific, his manifest presence, things shake, things break, bushes burn, wind blow. I mean, like, things happen. Things don't stay the same. So in the week of our worship, we can expect God's presence to come. And yes, I know Paul and Silas' story is very dramatic, and I'm not saying that there's always dramatic things that happen when we worship, but we do experience his presence when we worship, when we draw near to him. And also, we can expect God's power to act. Now, there are three things physically that happen, and I think there's some symbolism that can be drawn here. Um, the foundations of the prison were shaken, the locked doors of the cells were opened, and the bonds that held individual prisoners. Were unfastened. And so you can think about that God's power to act, when the foundations are shaken, the prison itself represents the world's institutions. Right? The prison was something that was a human invention that Paul and Silas were thrown into. They were at the mercy of that system, that institution. Well, when God's presence comes, even institutions of the world can be shaken. Foundations can be shaken. That we don't have any power or even any voice in, God's presence can shake them. Locked doors can be opened. I think about that. You know, it wasn't just Paul and Silas that were set free. Everyone in that prison, prison was set free. And you can think there are groups of people, there are families, there are tribes, there are people groups, there are, there are language, and all different kinds of groups of people that are set free or that are released when God's power shows up or his presence is there. Locked doors. Are open and then there are bonds that were unfastened and I say that that maybe the symbolism of those bonds represent the personal deliverance and healing that God brings for you and me in Christ Jesus. So yes, foundations of world institutions can be shaken. locked doors that are keeping people unjustly guarded or imprisoned can be broken open and bonds, individual personal deliverance and healing that is needed comes. So in the wake of our worship, we can expect God's presence to come, God's power to act, and finally, God's purpose to be revealed. This is probably the most shocking thing to me in this story. It, it's hard for me to comprehend. Because Paul and Silas are worshiping in a very bad situation, or what seems bad on the outside, at least very painful and God shows up in a big way. The foundation shakes, the doors open, people run out free, bonds are unfastened. And what would you do? I know what I'd do. I'd run. I'd be gone. And in other circumstances, Paul and Silas, they weren't, that was not their first rodeo in prison, so to speak. They left at other times. But in this situation... In this time, they were so connected to God by the Spirit, so surrendered to His witness and to His leading that when the foundations were shaken, the doors were opened, the bonds were unfastened, everyone left, they're awaiting who knows what punishment or execution the next day. They stay. Who does that? Who- Who does that? Who stays? I, to be very honest, I, I don't know if that's me. I don't know. I don't my faith has never been tested like that. Maybe none of us here. I don't know. But that's something. That's something really special. That's a life of worship. Being more convinced of what can't be seen, the eternal realities of God's kingdom, more than the things that we can see to such an extent that after you have been beaten to a pulp and wrongfully imprisoned, God shows up, you stay put. Because you have a witness that that's the right thing to do. I don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us what that inner conversation was like, but they did stay, and that's shocking. But see, that's where God's purpose then was revealed. I don't know, Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. That be still, that word in the Hebrew can also mean surrender. To be so surrendered to God, to know that he is God, that the only time you move is at the impulse of his love and the leading of his spirit. And even when everything is so tempting to do what everyone else is doing, leaving the prison that you shouldn't even be in, you're willing to stay. And so that then presented an opportunity to share the gospel and salvation to the jailer's whole family. You see, in the wake of Paul and Silas's worship, it was so confounding because the jailer see that he thought he was going to be killed for not watching or keeping the two prisoners he was expressly told to guard and he, he thinks like like, how could you stay why are you still here and all he could do was fall on his knees and say sirs what must i do to be saved is your worship for God, so wholehearted, so settled, that someone could look on in a different station, who even, you know, and, and just fall to their knees and say, I don't know what's going on with you, but it's you're serving a God that I maybe can't see. So what what must I do to be saved? That's what happened in the wake of their worship. And God's purpose was came to be revealed. And you know, and they said, very simply, very directly, they didn't beat around the bush, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house and he took them the same hour of the night and then the jailer washed Paul and Silas, washed their wounds, began to serve the prisoner and then his whole family was baptized at once. I mean, talk about an amazing turn of events. Talk about an amazing divine opportunity to bring salvation and the gospel to a family who otherwise probably would never have heard or may never have heard. We're just in a different realm. Could God trust you with prison to bring the gospel to the prison guard? I know that's what I'm... Have to, we have to consider. And you know, in that promise, I just want to make one aside reference. It, you know, um, it says salvation came to the jailer and to his whole household. And you think, well, don't you, doesn't each person have to confess the Lord Jesus personally? Like, I can't confess even for my kids or for somebody else. And that's true. But what we see is, In this scripture is something that, you know, Promise Keepers did a study on this in the 90s. One of the Baptist denominations or the um, the Baptist agencies did another survey um, to follow up, and they proved or they observed this stat. And it is that when a dad is the first person to come to Christ in a family, that 93%.